actually think the main roadblocks are about ego and identity. Um, you have leaders who are saying, well, if I'm not the one who is sitting in the corner office, reviewing things, saying yes or no, deciding what the priorities are, who am I? What makes me important? What makes me special? How do I contribute to the meaning and the purpose? Welcome to ProCo 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This show, like many, features successful entrepreneurs, and different from the others, all our guests, like you and I, choose Colorado. Success is different here. It's multidimensional. That's why I say live, work, love Colorado. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Aaron Dignan, author of Brave New Work. I've been watching for a Colorado author to interview, and Aaron's book has taken off like crazy. It's been endorsed by huge names in today's business thinking, Arianna Huffington and Adam Grant. Seth Godin called Brave New Work the management book of the year. We're going to talk about that, and uh, we'll talk about his book. I'm also going to ask Aaron how he got those amazing endorsements and what his life is like now as a speaker and author. Aaron, thanks for joining me on ProCo 360. I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad you, you know, there's one thing I forgot in the, in, that you're also part of a business called The Ready. We're going to talk about that too, because these concepts overlap. But first I want to thank our sponsors, Community Banks of Colorado and MicroStar Keg Logistics. They support Colorado entrepreneurism and they support this show. Thanks too to the Colorado Chamber of Commerce for its support for me and ProCo 360. So let's start with the interview and Aaron. The business, The Ready, and also your book now, Brave New Work, both rely on sort of a basic message, a concept. Why don't you start by giving us a short overview of that? Yeah, I mean, the the concept behind the company and the book is essentially this idea that uh, the way we work was invented on a factory floor about 100 years ago. Um, it was invented to maximize efficiency and compliance. Um, the world has changed an enormous amount since then, and that way of working is no longer serving us. We have a lot of disengagement, a lot of disenfranchisement, a lot of people that are wishing for more meaning and purpose and connection mm -hmm. at work. Um, and even on the metrics that we care about on a financial basis, there's a lot of struggle uh, to maintain relevancy, to, to keep things moving, to be adaptive and responsive to changing markets. So the idea of, of Brave New Work and The Ready is essentially that we need to take ownership of our way of working. We need to go back and ask those questions about what is and isn't serving us. Well, and, and it sounds like this is a new way of thinking about business. So, you know, in the 80s, we had new ways of thinking that uh, this, this Tom Peters with his really, for sure, you know, loud cries around <laughs> in search of excellence. Then there was, you know, Jim Collins and Good to Great in the 90s, Simon Sinek now, Leaders Eat Last, Start With Why. So have they all been missing it? And now this is it? think that there's a difference between incrementalism and revolution, for sure. Um, and I actually think a lot of those thinkers would advocate for a more radical reinvention, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, you chose some interesting names there. But the idea is that most of the work we see, most of the articles we see in magazines around work and, you know, how we should improve are sort of like how to be a better manager, mm -hmm. not right, should right, we right. have managers. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, how do we get another 10% out of the business? How do we get a small, you know, just keep the thing moving, keep the wheels on the bus mm -hmm. as opposed to talking about, you know, should we stop and, and reconsider and maybe reinvent some of this stuff? Well, and in your book, you even talk about that it can be harder to make incremental change, right? I mean, lots and lots of people are trying to make inter incremental change, right? Yeah, the idea there, it actually comes from uh, from Astro, who run, ran, uh, runs uh, Google's, you know, X Lab. And the idea was that, um, you know, when you try to make an incremental change, like get a gas mileage to be two miles per gallon better, mm -hmm. 
you're sort of working with all the current assumptions. So we have to keep everything working the way it is and make it a little bit better. And Mm -hmm. so you kind of hit these points of diminishing returns where it becomes more and more expensive to get the next fastest chip inside your mobile phone. When you start to say, well, what if we needed to double or triple that performance? Mm -hmm. You have to throw all that out the window. And so now it's like, wow, if we want a battery that lasts three times longer, we got to go down to the studs and reinvent. Well, it seems like a lot of the management gurus about getting employees involved and all that, they were really saying, if you get all your employees involved, they can help you make constant small improvements forever. 2%, 10% gains every year. You're saying that mm, that's probably not where you want to go. I think the gains are going to be what they're going to be. I like the idea of participation being at the heart of this. I think the question is, when you say get them involved, what do you mean, right? There's a big difference between I'm the CEO and I went around and I got some input and then I decided what to Mm do in in my Well, suggestion boxes that you implement, right? Yeah, That's not what you're talking about. That's one degree. (laughs) Yeah. Another degree might be to just go to the teams and say, hey, what's stopping you from doing the best work of your lives? And when they tell you the answer, say, great, what would you like to change to address Mm. that? So actually... Mm really putting uh, you know, autonomy and distributed authority out into the system. Um, and there's a lot of good you know, science to back up why that's a good idea now versus maybe in the past. Okay, what's an example of that? Well, the reality is you know, when you have two boxes of uh, cornflakes on the shelf in the grocery store, now we have 15 brands yeah. of Oreo, um, the, the competition, the dynamics in the market, everything was slower, more pace, the moats were bigger. It was a lot easier to kind of predict and control what would happen. And if you had a position of authority or power as a leader, you could make sense of what's going on in the market and then make mm-hmm, a choice and mm-hmm. actually be ahead of the market. Yeah, yeah. Now we live in a world where the dynamics, the change is so rapid. There's so much complexity. We're so interconnected. We're so global. The companies, frankly, are so big, you know, mm-hmm. 500,000 people that you can't compute it all. You can't know it all as the leader. You can't be everywhere. You can't be in every conversation. You can't turn it around in time. Well, it's interesting you, that you say that because I read something just this morning researching a company. First, I'm going to get into that. I yeah. want to remind listeners, you're listening to Proco 360 and I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is a show featuring entrepreneurs and business leaders who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. I'm speaking with Aaron Dignan of The Ready, the author of Brave New Work, which is going crazy. And and I, I was, as I was preparing for this, I was doing some research about a company, thinking to myself that, okay, old school companies, they're mm. old school. Software companies and tech companies, you mentioned Google X, you know, they're looking at things differently. And then I just read this from a, there's a compensation software company I was researching and mm. it said, this is what they said. We address a critical business need to incentivize employees and align their behaviors with company goals. Our solutions allow organizations to make better strategic decisions, optimize behaviors, increase sales and employee performance, improve margins, increase operational efficiencies, mitigate, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the point is, it seems like they're trying to, using high tech, allow people to manage the old way. Yeah, they, there's still this sort of uh, fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of what an organization is. Yeah. So but, I, I, I talk a lot in the book about the difference between complicated and complex. So complicated systems are systems like watches or engines that are cause and effect based, that have a lot of parts, that are linear, that are very predictable. If you're an expert, you can get that watch fixed by Monday morning and you Mm -hmm. can be quite confident. It's not going to surprise you. Yeah. A a complex system is different in the sense that it is dispositional. It has a way it's trending, but the, the dynamics between all the interconnecting parts are too variable. There's too much uncertainty and the system can surprise you. So Mm -hmm. that could be you know, traffic, weather, a garden, a six-year-old. You can't be exactly sure if I do this, what's going to happen? You know, how do I fix this? No one ever comes in 
from the garden and says, honey, I fixed the garden. Yeah. That's, yeah. you would yeah. never yeah. say that, right? Yeah. You nurture it. You, you interact with it yeah. in order to understand it and, and move it in the direction. So when I, when I hear words like that and I hear talking about optimizing and getting the behaviors you want and X, X equals Y, yeah. Yeah. I hear people saying, oh, the organization's a watch. And of course, it's not a watch. Uh, you take 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000 human beings and put them together, you're going to have a lot of uncertainty. You're going to have a lot of surprises. Hmm. Well, it just seems like even in a, a company that ought to know better than, <laughs> you know, selling a high-tech solution, both ends of this deal ought to know better. So what should they, if they, if they want to create software to help a company optimize sales, their language in your world ought to be different, right? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a few things at odds there. So one is, you know, just right off the bat, talking about the idea of incentives, right? There's a lot of really good work now. I mean, you can read, you know, Punished by Rewards, hmm. a lot of really good work to show that extrinsic motivators tend to kill that intrinsic drive and that mm-hmm. connection to the work. So over time, having, you know, elaborate bonus programs and things yeah. like that are going to ultimately hurt. Um, more than they help. And so even though we're really addicted to that idea, that's one of those assumptions I'm talking about when I say we have to kind of take it back down to the studs. But the other part is assuming that technology is somehow more forward thinking about the nature of the organization. They're more forward thinking about technology. Uh But one of the quotes I talk about in the book is this old uh, Huxley quote where he talks about, you know, technology and technological progress just gives us a faster means to destroy ourselves, Uh right? It's just, it's high powered Taylorism. That's interesting. So you're, you know, this, this notion that, that assuming that a company that's in technology as a product or service it's delivering is actually more advanced in its thinking is probably a fallacy. I mean, they have, they have the trappings of some of the things we're talking about. So most technology companies, most startups are going to be a little bit more on the ball when it comes to working in an agile way, thinking about, you know, taking things from a lean approach, being test and learn oriented, mm-hmm. trying things, being a little bit more innovative. But the way that they think about human beings, the way they think about organizations, the way they think about how to make decisions, Mm -hmm. that is not necessarily going to be different. Do they all, look, if there are lots of great places to work and so forth, but do the companies in tech that think they're doing, they're assuming, right? Because they've got like a cool layout, they've got, (laughs) you know, a beer tap or whatever. Are they assuming that they're doing things systemically correctly when necessarily they may not be? I think almost every organization I run into is frustrated by either the presence or the specter of bureaucracy. Huh. So either they've got it because they've inherited it. So a lot of these, you know, tech startups that were small and were nimble, mm-hmm. they, you know, start to scale, they start to scale. Yep. Suddenly they yep. realize, oh, we need a head of sales. Yeah. They bring in the head of sales from a traditional Someplace. company yeah, 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 and yeah, in yeah, comes yeah. a new operating system, wow. right? That old way of thinking suddenly starts to have, I, have life there. I so. noticed when I started my own little business, I uh, grew for seven years and when there were, I had way more fun. I actually made more money with like four employees. Mm-hmm. Then once, once there were 10, all of a sudden people wanted job descriptions and then they wanted, you right. They want to know who's in charge well, of complex, this and that. The complexity yeah. goes up and they've actually done some really cool visualizations of just the number of communication lines you have to keep open when this team scales yeah. and it's nonlinear. So if you go right. from four to eight, you haven't doubled the communications yeah. complexity. It's gone up, you know, umpteen times. Yeah. Well, you, you just mentioned the term operating system and you talk about operating a system a lot in your book. You, you actually have a different sort of uh, description or way of thinking about an operating system. We need to go over that. I've got a couple of ideas. Yeah. I mean, as we were looking at all of these basic assumptions we have about work, how it should be done, how we should organize, how we should make decisions, how should we be structured, how should the workflow we started to realize that there was a foundational layer there in culture, in work culture of 
the way it is. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to give a name to that. And so the idea of an operating system or an OS seemed like a good metaphor. It was a good analogy to just say like, oh, okay, just like there's an operating system, you know, in your phone, in your pocket, or even the operating system of DNA in your body, right? All these things that sort of uh, become the foundation upon which everything else grows. So the idea was that, yeah, every organization, every team, every, you know, work culture has an OS, intentional or unintentional, deliberate or not. um, And it's made up of all of these practices and principles and ways Mm -hmm. of thinking and norms and assumptions. And and you advocate to be more thoughtful about the construction of one's operating system, right? And so here's what I found kind of interesting. You've got 12 aspects of business that need to be addressed in what you call an OS canvas transformation, right? And my first thought was, shouldn't this just be way easier? Shouldn't you just (laughs) want to like want to include people and make it a better place? But once you start breaking into 12 compartmentalized approaches, like, is that fun anymore? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's fun. I think we're trying to, (laughs) uh, to be useful. The, The reality is that you're right. There's really only two mindsets at the heart of this book and this movement. Um, one is people positive, which is this Mm. idea that essentially people are, you know, trustworthy and and worthy of being given some autonomy and some respect and that they're capable of learning and growing if left to their own devices and they'll take responsibility and all the sorts of stuff. It's sort of self-determination theory on steroids. Um, the, the other side of it is complexity conscious. So what we just talked about, the distinction that there are different kinds of systems, there are different kinds of problem spaces, and that we need to bring the right toolkit to yeah. the job. We can't bring a tool built for a watch to a, to a garden. Um, and so those two ideas are really all it is. The question then is, how then are they expressed mm. in the system? And that's where we came up with the OS Canvas, not as a be-all, end-all framework, because mm-hmm. there's no such thing. And yeah, again, yeah, yeah. it's a complex system. Yeah. But as a way to say, here are some places to dig mm-hmm. if you're starting out. Start thinking about yeah. authority. Start thinking about structure. Start thinking about how you share information, because it'll get you off on the adventure. Yeah. And then you'll yeah. realize just how nuanced it really is. Is this a long process? You've helped companies go through this. It depends on what you mean by it. So there's things that can happen in a day and there's mm. things that can happen in a year and there are things that might evolve over a decade. It's emergent. You can get a team together, ask them what's causing tension and start an experiment in an hour. Mm-hmm. And they can feel the result of that in a day or two. Mm. You, if you're going to change you know, a, an organization that has a million employees across 500 different locations, that may take a while. I mean, mm-hmm. that could take years uh, yeah. to, for this to cascade. But a lot of that time... And that delay has to do with our ability to let go yeah. and our ability yeah. to, to sort of let it emerge. And so once we really get on board with that, it's amazing how fast it actually can happen. Well, how does it... So I have some curiosities about this as I was listening to your, to your book, and I understand now it's out on Audible. Yeah, for sure. So um, a, a few of the practical things that made me wonder as I was thinking about it myself, how do you balance... You've all heard this expression, hire for attitude um, <laughs> and train for skill, right? When you're in the kind of operating climate that you're suggesting, does does the type of hiring you do change? I think it does. Um, I think you start to prioritize purpose alignment more. So do you does your personal purpose and the intent and sort of the dent in the universe you want to have align with ours um, becomes more important because mm-hmm, you're not mm-hmm. just a cog yeah, in a machine. Yeah. Um, I think the idea that you need to be open to um, you know a pretty intense environment in terms of feedback and, you know, candor and connection and transparency and authenticity is different. Um, so not everybody is, is up for that or has been trained in, in those environments. Yep. Um, you need to be up for, you know, taking more autonomy and taking more personal risk and choosing, you know, if I say, Hey, I'm not going to tell you what to do anymore. You have mm-hmm. to decide how to serve this purpose and this mission. 
that's actually a lot on your shoulders. And so that I think hiring for folks that are willing to step into that space, be vulnerable, you know, take action is important yeah, as well. What, what, what happens to things like pay? I mean, CEOs, as you mentioned too, are now at the, you know, a record high as a multiple of what their lowest paid earner makes. 271 to one. Yeah. And, but it used to be around 20. Yeah. So that seems like a disconnect too. It's a total disconnect. I mean, we're not getting too much into the economic OS today, but yeah. it is uh, it is rigged for some very particular outcomes. <laughs> well, and but but you can't you can't succeed in the world of brave new work if and keep that two hundred and seventy to one uh, to one ratio. I mean, no, I it think, just wouldn't I, work, would it? Well, I think if you're you know one of the sort of basic foundational concepts here is to have more participation. So that means. More people participating in more decisions, taking more actions, creating mm-hmm. more value, um, and that means that you know people need to consent to the way we're showing up and the way we're yeah. running the place. Yeah. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to do something in my company, for example, that my team would not consent to. Uh, mm-hmm. That they wouldn't agree is good for yeah. our yeah. purpose and our and our intent. Um, and so, yeah, maybe me having a pay rate of two hundred seventy-one to one yeah. is not. Maybe that doesn't align with our intent. It certainly wouldn't yeah. get consent. Yeah. So whereas, you know, there is some number of, you know, different people are going to create different amounts of value. Mm-hmm. So sure. what we see happening in the compensation space is either some very kind of um, egalitarian pay band scenarios where you basically say we have so many levels and no matter mm-hmm. who you are and what you look like mm-hmm. and where you live, if you're in the operating at this level, you get paid this much and there's transparency there. Yeah. There's, you know, definitely across all these. Uh, That's so different variations. to people. That must just make people get nervous. Oh, I'm sure it does. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people get very, um, we carry a lot of baggage around money, uh, mm-hmm. especially in this culture. So there, there is a um, an aspect of relearning or unlearning that goes mm-hmm. on there. Yeah. Um, the transparency, of course, shines a light on, on you know, inequalities that might happen. And so mm-hmm. that can be actually quite, quite cleansing. But it also, you know, can be quite nerve wracking, right? Yeah, like sure, if I'm sure. if I'm being paid sixty percent more than my colleague who does the exact same work I do, yeah, yeah. I don't really want that to get out. Sure. But it's you know it's going to come out. Mm-hmm. And then the more even more evolved uh, or more sort of challenging versions that we're seeing in the research. And by the way, there's you know sixty eight plus companies that we researched in this book that mm-hmm. that operate this way at scales ranging from ten to you know a hundred thousand people. Um, but many of them are doing self set pay. You know, Morningstar in, in California, for example, the world's largest tomato processor, um, all the corporate employees every year write their own job description and set their own pay with advice from their colleagues. Wow. And so, you know, at first glance, you're like, oh, that sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, the average profitability in their category is 2%. They make 20% mm-hmm. for the last 20 years. So it's possible. And in fact, when I sit yeah. down with leaders uh, in, you know, more traditional environments, I'm sitting in a room of you know, Harvard MBAs and they're like, oh, self-set pay is crazy. Yeah. I'm like, work, yeah. people that work, you know, in a tomato industry can do it. You got a Harvard MBA. I bet you yeah. can figure it out. Like, let's let's give ourselves some credit. So that sounds like a roadblock, um, you know, basically people's mindset, especially people who feel like they're on the track to do pretty well. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, is that a real roadblock or is that just something we need to get past? Well, I think, I mean, there's certainly roadblocks in terms of the, you know, the levels of aspiration and, and sort of personal, you know, quote unquote greed mm-hmm. that can occur. That, but I think that's the, that's the minority scenario. I actually think the main roadblocks are about ego and identity. Um, you have mm-hmm. leaders who are saying, well, if I'm not the one who is sitting in the corner office, reviewing things, saying yes or no, deciding what the priorities mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. 
who am I? What makes me mm-hmm. important? What makes me special? How do wow. I contribute to the meaning and the purpose? So they have to do a mindset to where they have a values, either values shift or going back to where they really would like to be, which is I'm a facilitator as opposed to a totally. I mean, you can be you it. can be a gardener, you can be a space maker, or frankly, there's a lot of people in management who would be happier and would create more value if they were actually doing the work. Yeah, you know, yeah. a software engineer who becomes a manager who really just craves writing amazing yeah. software. People keep getting promoted in order to make more money or right. in order to whatever it is, and yet they're they're happier in a more grounded place. Yeah, and not just happier, but literally creating more creating value. More value. I mean, we yeah. there's research in the book I covered from uh, from Gary Hamill where. There's about $3 trillion of waste in the U.S. economy from bureaucracy in the form of bad policy and unnecessary managers. So are companies making less money, I think I know the answer to my question, promoting people who could be just doing the work, <laughs> right? I mean, and, yeah. and everybody would be happier. Yeah, and also I think we're, I mean, you know, another thing that we get into in the structure space is we're very myopic and very monolithic about the way we think about the roles we can all hold. So if I'm the VP of finance, that's it. I'm the VP of finance. Mm-hmm. I'm one and the same. It's yeah. me, you know, the role and the soul uh, is the same mm-hmm. thing. But in a lot of these systems, including my own, um, you can hold multiple roles. So I can be on two teams. You can mm. be, you know, I can be the the team chef and the head of finance, right? I can do multiple things because I have multiple gifts and I can mm. do things that take a little bit of time or a lot of time and I can change that role mix as my career evolves. So as my skills evolve, I'm modulating what I do. You know, that sounds impractical. So, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound realistic in most of the worlds we all know. Is it happening really? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, literally in hundreds of places around the wow. world. There are hundreds of companies just in France alone in the corporate liberation mm. movement that are working along these Where lines. Where someone can be a software coder and the chef for lunch. Well, think about this. You, I mean, that's a very extreme example, obviously. And, well, and you, I just took it from you. No, no. I mean, you know, <laughs> but, to be, to be yeah, totally fair, yeah. we, have, we have a member on our team who is a very serious photographer, a mm-hmm. very serious cook, and mm-hmm. one of our, uh, you know, most senior consultants. Wow. And it doesn't mean that we, you know, he's not that head chef in the cafeteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, it, you know, if we have an event, he might cook. If we have an event, he might mm. take photographs. It doesn't diminish his ability to be a top-tier a consultant. consultant to How play those roles. And But there are much more realistic examples, yeah. too. Like, you know, someone that is playing a mentorship role for one uh, part of the organization might be playing, you know, a collaborative role in another. I might be on two or three different projects where my role is slightly different. So mm-hmm. on one, maybe I'm the leader. On one, maybe I'm a project manager. On one, I'm actually using my development ability. Mm. It just depends on the. It's like, wow. what is the fit in this context for my skills? How can I add the most value? And how do I use my skills in a way that keep me moving and learning and engaged instead of waiting three years for the promotion to try something new. What if 10% of my time started to move towards something that could really Mm -hmm. challenge me? Now I'm so much more engaged. I'm so much more entertained. I'm so much Mm -hmm. more plugged in instead of waiting or leaving, frankly, to go get that next thing. Is there a tension though, between what you're describing, which I think ultimately would make people really happy (laughs) and satisfied and productive, all of those things. Yeah. How do you deal with that tension of, uh, we're not used to this, we're not comfortable with this. Some people are going to be at, at different speeds graduating totally. to that attitude, right? Yeah. So how do you, as a consultant, because I know this is what you do, is consult with companies to help them get there. People get there at a different play, a different time. So how do you manage the tension that's going on within an organization around yeah. that? Well, first of all, I couldn't agree more, actually. I think one of the main things that's broken about most change management is that we think of the organization as in these big 
stages and moments all at the same time. Yeah. And it's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think 10,000 people are all in the burning platform stage of this change? Yeah. No, they're not. Yeah. Some are way over here, some are way over there. And that will always be the case. Yeah. So, so first we have to embrace that. The way we handle it is we go to teams and we start with that question. What's stopping you from doing the best work of your mm-hmm. life? They tell us the answer that's true for them right now. Yeah. We don't put an answer in their mouth. And then once they say what it is, we start designing an experiment that will move them to the next step. We, we talk about it using uh, Stephen Johnson's phrase, the adjacent possible. Mm. What's next mm-hmm. door to now for you? Mm-hmm. What, what is the mm. thing that you actually can imagine? So maybe self-set pay is crazy to you. Yeah. Great. Don't do that now. Yeah. What is next door? Maybe mm-hmm. having a slightly better meeting. Maybe having a little bit of a more dynamic budgeting But that's process. that incremental change that you were criticizing at the beginning of our conversation. It's only incremental, though, if we stop there, right? So uh-huh. most of these systems, they'd write a whole book about, let's do... A slightly better meeting and then we're all good. What we're saying is let's start a pattern of taking ownership and create bigger and bigger questions, right? So I worked with a, I worked with an educational company, you know, about a quarter of a billion dollar company that, um, you know, when we started, the question was, how can we make faster decisions? We're so slow. We're so stuck on the decisioning. We got there, but we didn't start with how do we blow up the budgeting process, right? That would have been too much. By the end of the 12th month, the CEO pulls us aside and is like, Hey, I have a question. Why do we do uh, uh, annual budgeting when the world changes so fast? And we were like, huh, what, an what a question. question. Yeah, now, yeah. How do we, once someone asks the question, they have a mm-hmm. space in their brain for the answer. Wow. So we're always looking at like, how do we use these incremental moves, but in the spirit of the principles, mm-hmm. which are not incremental yeah, at all, yeah. to move towards bigger and bigger questions. Got and it. once you're asking that question, it's mm-hmm. like, by the time he gets there, I'm yeah. 90% done. Like well, the answers are out there and he's going to find them. Well, I'm going to ask you one big question, then I'm going to shift gears. First, I want to remind listeners, this is Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. I'm speaking with Aaron Dignan, speaker and author of Brave New Work. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible, including Brave New Work. So please also rate Proco360 in your app. And the last question before I shift gears is, what is keeping more companies from moving in this direction? Yeah, that's the that's the question that keeps me up at night for sure. Because we're at you know we're less than one percent probably yeah. globally. Um, I think the main main thing is actually that the the system we've signed up for, which is never ending growth, quarter to quarter, week to week, day to day, has mm-hmm. created a kind of an urgency where we go from project to project, meeting to meeting. I mean, mm-hmm. you've, you know, I'm sure yeah, you've yeah, seen yeah. the calendars of, of people in, at the top of these firms. You know, I had one client where the leadership team had 45 hours a week of meetings on average. That was just the, you know, that was their wow. average week. So you can imagine when that's the case, you don't have any time for reflection. And if you don't have time for reflection and retrospection, you don't have time to learn. Yeah. So if the meeting didn't serve you, you bitch about it at the water cooler or over Slack or on yeah, email, but yeah. you don't actually fix it. Yeah. There's no time There's for no that because we're on to yeah. the next crappy well, meeting. It, it also seems that in that same vein of thought that this constant pressure of growth and, and performance and so forth means that if you take a risk to do something really different and really innovative, now you're that much further behind. Totally. Yeah. If it doesn't work, then, you know, it's, you're in big trouble. So I think there's a lot of, of reticence to, to reinvent, even though it works better. And my favorite comic of all time as a, as a coach is a picture of this group of people pushing a cart up a hill. It has square wheels. They're, they're struggling. And the, the advisor has shown up and is holding a circular wheel, a round wheel, yeah. and saying, what do you think? And they basically say, we don't have time we for have that. Time. Yeah, yeah. I, to me, that is, in a nutshell, what is going on, right? We, yeah. we can't take the risk. We can't take the time because we got to get this cart up the hill. Yeah. Um, when, of course, what we learn is, you know, when you sharpen the axe, 
everything goes so yeah. much faster. So it's it, it is a it takes a certain boldness. Yeah. Well, and some confidence and some faith and maybe belief that this is just what you want to do. Yeah. Well, I, did, I mean, it's not easy new work. It's yeah. Brave new work. Oh well, good. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and and speaking now, we're shifting gears to yeah. your writing. Sure. And about being an author and being a writer and. You said it's not easy, and three or four. You you told your team what a little over a year ago. You're going to take three to four days a week, and you're just going to write. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? Well, it was uh, certainly easier to say than to do. Yeah. Um, it's easy Writing to is thing. hard. It is. It is, and it's a muscle. I think is the thing that I have learned after doing this twice now. It's a muscle that atrophies quickly, mm. um, that builds quickly, and so the irony, of course, of book writing is right around the time that you're real strong and you can yeah. just get up the wall and write two thousand words whenever yeah. you want. You're done, yeah. And then you, you know, you do this kind of stuff for two years mm. and you don't write again. So I've been trying to keep up those chops, but for me, you know, I just I became a real uh, habitual kind of person about it. Every day, three hours, first thing in the morning kind of guy. It, it, well, I was looking back on some of your old blogs and it seems like some of the concepts of your old blogs found their way into your book. 100%. And so you were sort of building your book as you were writing these blogs. Yeah. To me, a book is a souvenir, both for the author mm. and the reader. Mm. Um, it's a souvenir for the author of whatever they've been working through. And yeah. for me, this is the end of like a 10 year journey yeah. of, of wrestling with this stuff and my own you know, bad habits around micromanagement and all this kind of stuff. And then for the reader, it's a souvenir of the ideas that they, you know, hopefully want to subscribe to. And it's something they can sort of say, like, this is real yeah, now because, I, you know, yeah. because it's a real book. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This, this it has some sort of, uh, you know, semblance of authority oh, around it. Well, and speaking of semblance of authority, I got to ask, um, Seth Godin wrote about your book. Um, Arianna Huffington, Adam Grant, who's the best-selling author of Originals. Kevin Kelly, author of The, of the Inevitable, which I really liked. He's co-founder of Wired. Okay, how'd you do that? So. <laughs> I mean, it, it, like so many things, it's mostly uh, serendipity and and a lot of repetition. I um, because I talk about this stuff so much and I speak about it so much, I run into really interesting people. So you know, Kevin and I met in Paris at a speech that we were both giving, and we both enjoyed each other's speeches. Mm. And obviously, I'm a huge fan of him. Look yeah. up to him. And so we decided to start taking walks together. So when we we walk, we talk. And when you know, when the book came around, it was easy to to ask for that. Um, Favor. Someone like Seth has been incredibly generous with me my entire career, quite literally. I mean, even when I lived here in Colorado the first time, yeah. when I was growing up, I started blogging very early. Huh. He was one of the only other people doing it as wow. religiously. Yeah, and so yeah. we connected that way. So I think, um, you know, showing up actually is a lot yeah. of it. And then when you're there, if you if you, you know, have something to offer and you can find people that resonate, just leaning into that, yeah. um, you know, so but beyond that, I think I was just um, really fortunate. Well, but it sounds like you were in the right place to create genuine relationships. And that's, I mean, you didn't just write to them and say, hey, will you endorse this book? You had already had established meaningful two-way relationships with these folks. And and for the ones that I hadn't, I had another relationship that I'd established that did have that connection. Uh, so yeah, my, I have yeah. a dear friend, Rachel, who's a genius. And, you know, she was friends with Ariana. And so it was mm. very easy to just say, we have mutual friends, yeah. we have mutual connections. So it comes from a place of, of authentic connection. The other side of it, though, is that they then have to actually like it. Yeah. And, and you have to chase people down. And so sure. I, you know, to be really honest, I, I spent a lot of time being like, hey, how's that going? Yeah. Uh, you know, sure. Staying They've on got top other of it. things going. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah. As we all well, do. Well, so many people aspire, smart, talented people aspire to become speakers and writers. Um, how's this journey going for you? Is it what you expected? Um, I don't know if it's what I expected. I think what I what I craved was uh, 
an ability to make a living pursuing what I'm curious about. Mm. Um, from from you know very early on, it was like, how do I how do I create an, an, a system around me where I can follow my curiosity yeah. and get paid for it? Yeah. Um, and so that you know my whether it be my consultancies or my writing or my mm. you know speaking, et cetera, it's always been about that. That's so interesting because so often I mean we hear people pursue your purpose or your passion. In your case, you're pursuing curiosity, which I think in some ways is better than either one, right? Because curiosity is something that um, it's just the pre- sort of propels It's the precursor us. to purpose, right? So like, yeah. maybe you don't know what your purpose is yet. Maybe you're 22, maybe you're 52 yeah. and you don't know what it is, but you do know what you're curious about. But to me, satisfying curiosity is kind of entertaining yeah. in a way, right? It, it keeps you engaged in a way that maybe even passion and purpose can't quite yeah, do. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And for me, so following that, I've, I've better understood my purpose and my intent and and that has allowed me to put it together. And then- I've, I mean, I can't, I cannot overstate the importance of luck and, Mm. and fortune in everyone's outcomes, my own included. You know, I had the right, uh, family. I was born in the right places. I went, I had the right conversations. I, you know, I, this is not all my doing. Yeah. Um, got a couple of wrap up questions for you and, uh, you know, one of the, you're working on several things at once. You've got the ready, your business, you've got your book, you've got your speaking, how does the interconnectedness of all those sort of work through your life? I mean, we, we spend a pretty reasonable amount of time within the ready thinking about how it all connects. So, you know, for me, the writing and the speaking makes sense because it creates um, opportunity, opportunity to do this work with different organizations mm-hmm. in different ways. Some, some can just read the book and go do it on their own. Some need deeper help. So I think it's a virtuous cycle, um, and I don't really see them as independent. Yeah. I see them as yeah. one, it's one loop that we just keep, keep moving yeah. through. And and now you've gotten traction, you're getting noted, you become noteworthy. I mean, you're on this show. So, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> there Job you go. Done. <laughs> yeah. But as you think about things going forward, what does that look like that maybe is different from what it's been now? Well, my hope is, you know, I had a couple hopes for this book and I think they're both coming to pass. One is it usually takes me about six months to a year to go through all the concepts that are in there with a thought partner with a client with a someone that I'm advising or spending time with and so um it's a shot in the arm to just be like here it is it's yeah. all there and, and they take a plane ride and they land and they're like oh my gosh huh. you know i get it i'm ready like let's do this so yeah but the book's a, only 20 bucks you could consult for thousands right so. well part one of my you know my personal purpose is to accelerate this movement yeah, so okay. even at the expense of my pocketbook um, so I think though that's been really interesting. And then the other part is just having it reach places that I can't. So yeah. while I do have a lot of, you know, interesting relationships and, and networks, I'm, I can't touch everybody at all. And, but the book yeah, can really yeah. go to a lot of different places. Sure. So I've had emails in the last week from places as far away as, you know, Singapore and, mm-hmm. and the people are thinking about, um, you know, what can we do with this? And, right. and I love that. I mean, I think I just want to get them started. I don't have to yeah. be there to to see it all. Well, happen. and ultimately I think in this hyper-connected world, once you get yourself out there, once you get your material, your thoughts and people see you as a thought leader, I mean there's there's really no stopping. You don't know where it's going to go necessarily. Right. Right? But right. there's no stopping. Well, that's one of the reasons I was able to move back to Colorado. I mean, it matters less where I am and this is where I wanted to be. For sure. Well, I think that's a good place to end. So (laughs) I'm going to wrap up. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. And today on ProCo 360's Pro Business Colorado, you've been listening to my conversation with Aaron Dignan, speaker, consultant with The Ready, and author of Brave New Work. 
Aaron, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Uh, and listeners, thanks for joining me on ProCo360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you, I, and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the ProCo360 podcast and submitting a review. Thanks again to show sponsors, MicroStar Keg Logistics, Community Banks of Colorado, and the Colorado Chamber of Commerce. Thanks to Sarah over here who helped us coordinate all this. And thanks to show engineer Mike here at Third and James Studios. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado. Cool. There you have it. Anyway, well, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate it. So what's with the tat? Tell me what the tattoo is. I uh, want to oh, discipline. Yeah. yeah. Now that doesn't seem consistent with what, you know, for some reason, I know it's got to be right. You've got systems in place with brave new work and such. It's just, it doesn't seem to jive with the sense of like a discipline tattoo on your arm. <laughs> well, this is about personal discipline. Um, about pandemic. Came from a life when I yeah. And I was saying, what do they have that I don't? Huh. The answer was they get up at eight in the morning and they write for three hours every day. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I yeah. Have fun on Saturdays. Yeah. So, uh, I got the Hey. Good for you. That's tough. Did you ever see the book, um, Deep Work? Oh, totally. Cal's the friend. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he is? Yeah. Um, that book, when on the days I do it well, yeah. I tell my wife, I think that, that book has helped me go from an F in productivity to like a B minus. Nice. But I have to, you know, B minus is not great either, right? Let's face it, but it's a big improvement. But, um, you know, that's what comes to mind is like, you know, this focus that it takes. And now it's like I prep for, for these interviews and stuff. I'm like, okay, I think I can do this in one hour. Yeah. You know, if I don't let my, and sure enough, you know, you could do that when you're focused. We did, um, so Rachel, who I was talking about, podcast or in New York called Changing. Yeah. And so keep talking. I'm going to have Sarah take And they rebuild the, uh, entire should i put these back on so we look like we're sure doing it? um they rebuild the entire store uh every two months around that theme if you want to get up there and kind of shoot down around yeah, yeah. yeah. so they re- rebuild the store entirely so yeah, it's like yeah. all new merchandise all new uh-huh. you know there you fixtures all new every all new walls yeah. like it is like very expensive every how day. often every two or three months wow that's cool um so it's been going on for 10 years it's very famous in new york and people know what's it called One story story okay yeah. so yeah. it'll be like love story oh. or you know you know outdoor Got story it. or his story yeah. and oh, it'll cool. all be th- thematic around that so we did a store together uh six months ago that was called um work life story huh. and one of the themes that we played with was david duane's um uh, eudaimonia machine which was ha. in deep work which is that idea of building an office yeah. where each chamber gets you deeper and deeper into the work so we've designed the store that way we had david come in and he talked to cal and the last wow. part of the store was the deep deep work chamber ha. and we actually had bookable spaces where you could wow. come in and like That's go heads cool. down people yeah. booked them up for months wow and then they had you know different things around there that would support your deep work so like headphones yeah and, yeah. You know, yeah low light and all this kind of stuff mm. so anyway it's just uh, it was a really fun experience, but that That's was, neat. um, that was a neat, neat store. And David's a really cool guy. He's, um, much closer with Cal than I am, but he's just the owner of the, no, he's the architect oh, they that are, came oh, up with yeah. the, concept the concept of the Unimonia machine yeah, that yeah. Cal wrote about. Mm. Um, so he's, you know, the less famous, but ultimately, you know, 
creative dude. That's cool. Um, but he's an incredible architect, and and uh, they've had so few chances to actually build one. Because mm. in, in his view, like, all offices should effectively be this structure. Yeah, yeah. So it was cool to, to sort of pretend in a retail environment. That's cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking time today. Appreciate it. That was fun.